invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Smyrna was located about 35 miles north of Ephesus on the Aegean Sea, Asia Minor. It was a big and beautiful city. It had supported the Roman Empire for 200 years and had earned the right to be the central place of emperor worship in Asia Minor in 26 B.C. As all the cities competed to see who would build the temple to Tiberius Caesar, this was the city that was awarded the prize of being able to build it because they were so completely devoted to the emperor and his worship. There was also a little community of Jews in Smyrna. They turn up here in this text. In verse 9, Jesus speaking through John to the church, which was also there, said, I know your tribulation and your poverty, if you are rich, and the blasphemy, literally Slander, the word means blasphemy towards God, because slander towards God is blasphemy, but slander when it's used on the horizontal level. I know your slander by those who say they are Jews, but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. In other words, there was a Jewish synagogue in Smyrna, and they were speaking things, slanderous things, about Christians. And since that's what Satan does, Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. Now, this slander was probably in the form of negative things spoken to the Roman officials about the Christians in order to get the Romans to do something harmful to the Christians. Jews in the Roman Empire did not have the legal right to do the punishing of anybody. And if there was going to be conflict that resulted in imprisonment or death, then the Romans had to be brought in somehow. And so if one group was against another group, they had to get the Romans to see that that group was a problem. Now, I would guess that some of the things that were probably being said were, these Christians have another king besides Caesar, and they're a seditious and dangerous group that are going to bring ruin upon the empire if we don't squash them. Now, the reason I think that's probably what they were saying is because back in Acts chapter 17, where Paul moved through the cities of Macedonia, he came to Thessalonica where... The Jewish synagogue stirred up a whole mob uprising, and there we have a quote of what 
the Jews were saying. Namely, they said, these men have upset the world and act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. So that's the kind of half-truth. There is another king, Jesus. But the innuendo that they were therefore somehow politically seditious and dangerous people, that kind of insinuation and incrimination was very dangerous for the Christian. If the Romans believed that, then they could use their legal authority to put the Christians in jail and to put them to death. And since it appears that the Jewish synagogue was instigating the Romans to do that, they were called the synagogue of Satan. Now, let me show you from the text why I make the connection between the synagogue in verse 9 and the imprisonment of verse 10. Because it's not explicit that the Jews caused this imprisonment, but the connection between verse 9 and 10 is Satan or the devil. In verse 9, Jesus refers to the Jewish synagogue there in Smyrna as a synagogue of Satan who was slandering Christians. In verse 10, Paul says that the devil will throw some of those Christians in prison. Now, only the Romans have the right to throw them in prison, and so the devil is somehow going to instigate the Romans to take some of these Christians, put them in prison, and bring them to the point of death. Since the synagogue is called the synagogue of Satan... And since Satan is the one who's throwing them in jail, my conclusion is that the way Satan is doing it is by stirring up the synagogue to slander the Christians to the Romans who have the authority to put them in jail. So that's the connection I see between verses 9 and 10, between the Jews and the Romans, between Satan in the synagogue and Satan in the prison. So the situation in Smyrna is that the Jewish synagogue is linked up with the Roman authorities. They come against the Christians with official sanctions. They, they're about to put some in jail, it says, and some of them will be tested even to the point of death, Jesus says. Now, at this point in my message preparation, I stepped back and I thought about who would be here. And it seemed plain to me that this is incredibly inflammatory language about Jews. And that anti-Semitism is just one millimeter behind the consciousness at this point for people who are aware of what's going on in society. And therefore I thought, I need to reflect out loud with the people about this issue of anti-Semitism. Let me define it for you, first of all. This was going to be a parenthesis in my message, and it turned into the message. When I get to the end of the parenthesis, I will take five minutes to summarize the message. This is, this is the message. Anti-Semitism is hatred of Jews. Anti-Semitism is persecution of Jews as a people. Anti-Semitism is ridiculing Jews, making fun of Jews, joking about 
Jews, using cavalier stereotypes about Jews. That's my definition of of anti-Semitism. Now, the amazing thing to me, as I've thought about this, is why has there been, in the history of the church, a stream of Christian anti-Semitism, of which we should be ashamed and for which we should repent? And if you want to get anywhere in dealing with Jewish people in general, you better just come clean with that up front. I found that very helpful, very needful. But what has flabbergasted me is why that should be. Why is there this stream? Because Jesus was a Jew. My Lord is a Jew. All twelve of his apostles were Jews. That is, the foundation and pillar of the church is Jews. Jesus said, salvation is from the Jews in John 4. Every book in the Bible, with the exception of Luke's, are written by Jews. Our book, our beloved scriptures. To be a Christian, the Bible says, is to join into the covenant made with Abraham and to become a Jew by faith. If there is no salvation to the Jews, there is no Christianity. If the covenant made with Abraham is invalid, we have no grounds for faith. We have salvation because we're grafted into Judaism. The olive tree with its rich root of mercy flowing up from the covenant. And on top of all of that, the Bible says that Israel as a nation will one day be wakened. They will recognize Jesus as their Messiah and they will return in mass and join in the covenant as the formerly estranged people of God. Why has there been anti-Semitism? Why have not we always obeyed Paul when he said, do not become proud, saying the branches were broken off, that you might be grafted in? That is true, but you stand fast only through faith, humility and faith, not by boasting over the broken off branches, for they too shall be grafted back in if they believe. Why, ha- why hasn't the church seen that? Why haven't we had an attitude of dependence and, and uh, beholden? We are debtors, Paul said to the Jews. Why has there been pogroms and viciousness and persecution and slander and belittling and ridicule and jokes and hatred? Where does that come from? Paul responded so differently to knowing these things. He said, I would be accursed if my kinsmen could be saved through it. He said, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. He said, my whole apostleship is spent if by any means I might save some of them. He didn't hate Jews. He didn't ridicule Jews. He didn't avoid Jews. He risked his life day in and day out to bring good news to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul was not a Jew hater. 
Where in the world did this come from? This text gives a partial explanation. Because what it shows is intense animosity in the early centuries from the Jews toward the Christians. And then, as time went by, in reverse. Now, I say carefully, this text is a partial explanation, not justification. Hatred towards Jews, persecution towards Jews, ridicule towards Jews, despising Jews, caricaturing Jews is never justified. Ever. But there is some explanation here that there was tremendous animosity against the Christian church from the Jewish community in those early days. And through slander, they were bringing the Christians into prison and to death. And you might say it was only human. It was sub-Christian and ungodly that there would be mutual animosities through the centuries. An explanation, not a justification. Our only stance towards the Jews should be my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved and that the estranged people of God might have the veil lifted and their eyes open to behold their Messiah and believe and be saved with the church. You know, if you pray for Jews daily, the way Jesus prayed when he wept over Jerusalem, and the way Stephen prayed when they were stoning him, and he lifted up his voice and said, Father, don't lay this sin to their charge. And the way Paul prayed when he said, My heart's desire is that they might be saved. If you pray for Jews like that, you will not easily rise from your knees and make a joke. You won't easily rise from your knees and stereotype and caricature and despise. It won't work. It's an issue of the heart. And if the heart is the heart of Jesus and Paul and Stephen, the mouth will change. Now, there's another point here in this text that I need to make about anti-Semitism and um, a wider issue than anti-Semitism. It says that the Jews in Smyrna who resisted the Messiah and slandered the Christians were called by Jesus a synagogue of Satan. Jesus said they're under the dominion of Satan. They're doing the deception and the slandering that Satan loves to have done and the destroying work that Satan loves to have done. Jesus said the same thing in John 8 when the Jews were opposing him in his own lifetime on earth. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Now, here, here's the tough thing this morning. That is going to be called anti-Semitism today. That language of Jesus, they are a synagogue of Satan. They are children of their father, the devil. That's going to be called anti-Semitism. 
just straight out of the mouth of Jesus. Just a Bible verse. It's not rhetoric from a preacher. It's just a Bible verse. That's going to be called anti-Semitism today. But not because there was hatred behind it. There wasn't. Jesus did not hate when he said that. Not because he was trying to stir up persecution against the Jews. He wasn't. He condemned it. Not because he was maliciously ridiculing the Jews. That was not a statement of ridicule coming out of the mouth of Jesus, earthly and risen. It's simply the fact that the existence of Christianity as a movement that embraces Jesus, the Son of God, as its Savior, Lord, and Messiah, puts Judaism in a position of standing outside and rejecting that Messiah as the Son of God, and thus aligning themselves with what Satan does, namely, opposing the Son of God. It's the very definition of Christianity that these things are so. To be a Christian and to receive and affirm Jesus as the Messiah is to say that a person who rejects Jesus as the Messiah is aligning themselves with the devil who hates Jesus. But it is not hatred. It is not persecution. It is not ridicule. There is no sneer here. There is no scorn. There is no mockery. There is no jesting. There is love. There is longing for salvation. There is tears. Jesus, after he had looked upon the Jews and said, You are of your father the devil when you do this, died for them. He wept over Jerusalem. Oh, that you would know the time that made for peace. When Paul was whipped and beaten five times by Jews, he said explicitly. Five times I was beaten by Jews with 39 lashes. Every time he got up from the ground and went to the next city to the synagogue first to bring them life and hope and salvation. Stephen looked the Jews of the Sanhedrin in the face and said, You always are resisting the Holy Spirit. They stoned him to death, and as he was being stoned, he said, Father, lay not this sin to their charge. Now, neither Jesus, nor Paul, nor Stephen was an anti-Semite. Though they spoke the truth, they spoke it clearly, and they spoke it forcefully, there is a hardness, there is a blindness, there is an alignment with the devil, albeit unwitting. And that is not hatred. That is not persecution. That is not ridicule. That is not mockery. That is loving truth. That is willing to lay down its life that it might not be so. To speak the truth about the unbelief of Israel today will be called anti-Semitism. There is nothing you can do to change that. It will be. But what you can change is never hate a Jew. Never despise the Jewish people. Never persecute them. Never caricature them. 
Never mock them. Love them. Pray for them. In the power of Jesus Christ, bear witness to them. Hold out your hands to them. And tell them the truth. And do not react in kind when you are called anti-Semitic, which you will be. There are two reasons I'm dwelling on this and that the parenthesis became the message. One is, I just want so much for us not to hate. We live in a nation and a world that is hating more and more. There's more hatred, more feelings of viciousness and bitterness and conflict and anger every day. It just mounts. The stridency and the bitterness in all kinds of conflicts is hotter and hotter. And I want to appeal to you not to hate. Not to persecute. Not to return evil for evil. That's one reason. My second reason now moves beyond the issue of Jewishness and anti-Semitism to the wider issue of how Christians are viewed today by our opponents. And I just want to prepare you for this hard truth. I think you know it, but you need to hear it repeatedly, I think. The hard truth is this. The opponents of Christianity today are not, by and large, going to, with academic, respectful, dispassionateness, look you in the face and say, I believe you are mistaken and I'm willing to talk with you about which one of us is right not the way it's going to happen. Opponents of Christianity today are increasingly going to oppose Christianity by calling Christianity not mistaken, but evil. Not mistaken, but dangerous. And this will happen in direct proportion to the degree that you go public. If we stay here and talk to each other about these things, they could care less the world. What do they care what we do here? But if you go public and assert the rightful claims of God over all human beings and declare the lordship of Jesus Christ over every man, woman, and child in this city and over all of its structures, the effect will be things like this. These leaflets were handed out at the university this week and It reads, say no to bigotry and hatred. Defend reproductive freedom and queer rights. A group of so-called religious right-wing bigots are marching in a march for Jesus on Loring Park in Minneapolis on June 12th from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. to advance their anti-queer and anti-woman political agenda. The opposition to Christianity and to the declaration that Jesus is Lord is not going to come in the form of, you are mistaken. Let's talk. It's going to come in the form of, you are anti-gay, anti-woman, anti-choice, anti-intellectual, anti-tolerance, 
anti-diversity because as soon as that label is on you, they've got the moral high ground. And undiscerning people will not know what to do except to join them, because who likes being anti? And the other possibility, and this is more widespread among evangelicals, is to just hide. Here's the way many of your minds begin to work, I fear. And I'd say it so that they won't. Hmm. Well, if, if preaching or speaking on the street corner, or going on the radio, or having a rally at the university, or doing a march, results in Christ being smeared as a right-wing bigot and a hater of homosexuals, then certainly we should do all we can to avoid that reproach being brought on the name of the Lord. Let's stay home and watch television. That's where, that's where most evangelicals are. They're at home, watching television. Preserving the name of the Lord. It works. It does work. Nobody will ever show any hostility towards you if you just stay at home and watch television. You will, you will be the salt of your living room. Jesus did not tell the Christians in Smyrna to respond like that. He said in verse 10, be faithful unto death. You know what caused that death? Slander. Slander. That's in verse 9. Slander. Slander brought about the imprisonment. Slander brought about the death. And Jesus said, don't go underground and hide yourself and avoid slander and protect my name. Be faithful unto death. Go on out there. Let the slander fall on you and kill you. And I'll give you a crown of life. That's the end of the parenthesis. And let me just take a minute here to summarize the message. Because the message is the power to get you into the parenthesis and keep you there where the tensions are in life. The title I would put over this five-minute summary is this. Things are worse in Smyrna and Minneapolis than you think they are. And things are infinitely better in Minneapolis and Smyrna than you think they are. They're worse because even though, as it says in verse 9, they knew there was tribulation, they knew there was poverty, they knew there was slander, what they didn't know was that Satan was about to cast some of them into prison and to bring some of them to the point of death. So things were worse than they thought they were. But things were better, too. Far better. And they're better in Minneapolis than any of us dreams. And let me summarize the six things here. Just mention them. Number one. Verse eight. Christ is the first and the last. Therefore, Christ is going to have the last word in this world. The last word over your life will not be anybody's slander. The last word will be a mighty trumpet-like word of vindication spoken by the Lord of glory over all the earth for every ear to hear. Number two, Christ died, verse 8 again, Christ died and has come to life. So that when you go to jail and for ten days suffer and then die at the end of that ten days, the thought in your mind should be, it happened to Jesus. It happened to Jesus and he's not dead. He's not dead. 
And I won't be dead in a minute either. The third thought that is better is Christ knows your pain. Verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty. I love that phrase. I know your tribulation, John. I know your tribulation. He's not a distant God. Not a high king who stays up in his office. I know your tribulation. And therefore, I just appeal to you, don't resent the fact that he leaves it for ten days and lets you die. Don't resent that. Rather, exult in the fact that he knows, he cares, he carries, and he will save out of death. Number four. You are rich, verse 9. You are rich in poverty. You are rich in tribulation. You are rich in prison. You are rich in death. You are rich. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the world. If you are the children of God, you are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. Therefore, I do not count the sufferings of this life as worthy to be compared to the glory, the inheritance that is about to be revealed to the children of God. Five, you're going to receive a crown of life. Verse 10, be faithful unto death and you will receive a crown of life. When you come to the end of your race and you hit the tape and you die, the judge in this race, he walks over with a wreath, a victory wreath, and he bends down and he puts that wreath on your head and he takes you by the shoulder and you live again. And you wear that crown of life. Forever and ever. No more pain. No more slander. No more discouragement. No more frustration. No more depression. No more tears. No more bone aches. Just joy and God forever. Finally, in 11, at the end of the verse, you will not be hurt by the second death. That is the lake of fire. Chapter 20, verse 14, defines the second death as the lake of fire, hell forever. There is something worse, brothers and sisters, than dying. Okay? Namely, dying twice. And I hope that your vision of God's mercy and grace and power is not such that you resent the fact that He does not expend omnipotent energy to save you from the first death. He lets you go through it. If your definition of mercy and grace and divine power is that if He were God, He would not let me suffer ten days and then die in this Roman jail, then you will not have the God of the Bible. But if you dwell on the fact that God devotes His omnipotent, sovereign energy and power and grace to saving you from the second death so that nothing can send you to the second death, then you will rejoice in and through the first death and be glad that you're coming out with a crown of life and you will never come into judgment. You will never come into judgment. And that's the greatest news in the world, that you will be with Him forever and ever. And so I invite you on Saturday not to stay at home. 
I invite you, no matter who's there and no matter what slander is there, that very simply we lift up the banner and say, Christ has the last word. Christ is alive forevermore. Christ knows your pain. Christ will make you rich. Christ will give you the crown of life. Christ will not let you be hurt by the second death. Christ is all. That's the message of that march. It has nothing to do with a bigoted political agenda. That's right. Oh, Lord God, we live in a complex and convoluted culture. It is not easy to be a faithful witness today. Therefore, we need you in order that we might live and say that Christ is all. And all the people said, Amen.